Well, what am I going to share with you today? Well, something actually that you already know. And that's always a puzzle for a preacher because we, we, are, we're, we are presented with the problem, actually, of trying to tell people, you know, and teach people and bring the word to people. But actually, they've already all, all heard it before. There's this very little new, right? And we preach on a passage of scripture and we know that you already know it. But that's not the preacher's job. The preacher's job is to actually bring to you something that you already know and keep on bringing that, keep on repeating it, keep on repeating it, as Paul tells Timothy, keep on repeating and repeating and repeating the truth because the preacher's question is not do you know it. The preacher's question is if you know it, why aren't you doing it? So what the preacher's aim is not to always tell you something new but to perhaps remind you of the things you do know and to remind you to put them into practice. That's the preacher's basic goal, yeah? So I'm going to tell you something you already know. But the danger is you're going to switch off. So I'm asking you to give me a couple of minutes. And then after that, if you want to switch off, I'll lower my voice and you can have a nice sleep, right? I had a guy in church. He used to come and he used to sit about three or four rows back, around about there. And uh, he would come every week. He would stand during the worship. He wouldn't sing. He would sit down. When the preaching started, he'd put his head down and he'd go to sleep. How do you know he was asleep? Because sometimes he'd be <laughs> head up, eyes closed, mouth open. He slept year. You can ask my wife. Year after year. Year after year. He was very regular. He was very faithful. Okay? I can tell you he attended church more often than some of the others. But he always fell asleep. Until one Sunday. One Sunday, uh, uh, we preached as normal, and, you know, we had an altar call, and he's up out of his seat like a rabbit and straight to the front. I thought, well, you know, you, it takes years, but he must have got it over the years while he was asleep, and yet he accepted the Lord, and, and it was a wonderful experience for him. He was an elderly man, and we thought, well, isn't that fantastic? At last, his, bro- his son, who used to bring him to church every week, he was so excited, He said, wow, my dad's just accepted the Lord. Isn't it brilliant? And uh, that guy passed away that week at home, quietly. He just went to be with God. Isn't that amazing? God is wonderful. Now, so don't fall asleep. (laughs) Or if you have fallen asleep, just don't wake up for a while, you know. (laughs) I don't know. There's not a lesson in that. But it's just, you know, uh, people used to say, he falls asleep in church. I said, well, if he feels that good and that comfortable and it's that peaceful that he can fall asleep in church, uh, so what? Great place to sleep, right? Great place to sleep. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with what I want to talk to you about. Just asking you to give me a few minutes and then you can fall asleep if you want. So I want to talk to you about a passage of scripture that you are extremely familiar with, I said, and it's found in the Gospel of John chapter 2. And it says in verse 1, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out. Now, you know the story, right? So we don't have to go into all the elaborate stuff about the wine running out and and turning the water into water. You know all of this, right? So I'm not spoiling this message. I'm not... You already know, and you're saying, I already know this. I've heard it before. I've heard preachers preach this many, many times before. So just give me a moment. The puzzling thing about this, when I look at it, is to ask myself this question. If Je- Let's think about who Jesus is, first of all. Okay? They saw him as the, the carpenter 
who was the son of Mary, who was invited to this wedding. So they must have known the people at the wedding. Maybe they're family members. Maybe they just grew up in the same village. We don't know. But there was a familiarity. Jesus was known as that son of Mary, the carpenter, who's gone a bit religious. Yeah? That's maybe, I don't know how they would identify him. But that, that's who he was to them. But the marvelous thing about it is that Jesus comes to this wedding and you already know what's going to happen. He's going to turn the water into wine. The Bible tells us later on in this chapter that that was the first sign that Jesus performed. It was the first sign that would show the world that he was a son of God. It was the first proof. And Jesus chose at this wedding with this ordinary couple in this little village, in this very domestic scene, with people who are so insignificant, we don't even know their name. We know nothing about them. And yet, God turned the water into wine there, not just for them, but to show the world that he was the Son of God. It was the first sign. There are seven signs in the Gospel of John, and this is the first one. It's also significant because he turned water into wine. Now, you will remember that the first miracle that Moses did when he was confronting the hard heart of Pharaoh was he turned the water into blood. But Jesus turns the water into wine. And what we see from there, though Jesus is coming like Moses to deliver his people and to take them out of their bondage and take them into the kingdom of God, as far as Jesus is concerned, to translate them from this kingdom into that kingdom, whereas Moses was taking them out of there and bringing them into a promised land. So there's this idea of this deliverance ministry with Jesus, okay, that's... The whole idea, and it keeps on cropping up all the time in the Gospels that Jesus is coming as a, as a greater Moses to deliver his people from bondage. But he shows you that he's not coming to punish and bring blood from the water. That is, water becomes less, okay, less usable. You can't drink the water anymore. It's a punishment. Jesus turned it the other way around, and he turned it from water into the best wine they'd ever had. And it just shows you what God has come to do through Jesus Christ. It shows you that he has come to show grace and mercy. He has come to improve us. He hasn't come to punish us, threaten us, demand of us that we change. He has come actually to bring deliverance to us and to bring a life to us and a freshness to us and to bring the best to us, the best that we could ever have. We'll never have anything better than we can have with Jesus Christ. Amen. He will be the best for us. And the best wine is the wine that he gives us, not the wine we produce ourselves or provide for ourselves. And the best things that are going to happen to you in life are the things that God is going to do, not the things that you're going to do for yourself. Isn't that right? And that's what it's showing us. But in this very domestic situation, that he shows so much of his revelation in a, just an ordinary situation like a wedding. An ordinary, boring, normal wedding. And bang, there's this tremendous miracle. Just showing you how interesting God is in our ordinary lives. And how great a thing God can do in people like you and I in our ordinary lives. And with our ordinary problems. Because this wasn't an earth-shattering problem, right? It was a problem for the young couple. But really, you know, I mean, as world problems go, I mean, it's not that big a deal, is it? I mean, why should God bother if, if, if a young couple run out of wine at their wedding? Well, big deal. It's not going to change the course of history. It's not going to put the universe in crisis, is it? It's not going to produce a war. It's not going to kill thousands. So why bother? Why bother? 
because he cares for our personal needs. And that's a revelation here too, that here is a God who's going to intervene in our life and is prepared to intervene for the problems that we have that make no difference to anybody else, but they are problems to us. Personal problems, they're not going to affect history, and yet God wants to come into our life, our personal life, our small problems compared to the problems of the world, and he wants to show us grace and love and mercy, and he wants to help. He cares for our needs, no matter how small they are. And that's a revelation here of the nature of God. And so it's significant that the first thing he's doing is revealing really the true nature of his ministry and what he's coming for and what he's seeking to achieve in our lives. That he is approachable and we can bring our very smallest needs to him. And he cares for us and he has grace and help for us. But there's a puzzle for me here. Because you see, this is, they might have seen him as the carpenter's son, or the carpenter Mary's son. But he was more than that. And they couldn't see it. They will see it at the end, perhaps, some of them. But they couldn't see it. Now, we know him to be the son of God, yeah? And, well, if you don't know him to be the son of God at the end of this service, we can introduce you to Jesus Christ. You, and you can come to know him as your Lord and Savior. But if you are here today because you know him, then you know that he is the son of God, Yes? And as the Son of God, as God, he has the attributes of God. And there are many attributes of God, but one of them is that he knows everything. Yeah? So if you believe he's the Son of God, you believe he knows everything. If you've got any questions about that, you need to find Jesus as your Savior. Because you're not born again. Yeah? But he knows everything. Yes? So are we all on the same page? Anybody... Should we have a digression and a discussion? See, God can't learn anything because he knows everything. So he doesn't ever learn. He knows everything. It's a strange idea, isn't it, that you have, you have a God that he knows so much, he knows everything, there's nothing that he does not know so that he cannot learn. That's beyond your comprehension and my comprehension. We can't understand a being that does not learn because he already knows everything. It's beyond our scope of experience and understanding. It just blows your mind. But he knows everything. Full stop. There's nothing he does not know. If there was only one little piece, one small little thing that God did not know, he would no longer be God because he would not know everything. He would only know 99.99999. But he would no longer be God. That one thing would be greater than him. Yeah? Yeah? So he knows everything. I know you think he doesn't know. I know you accuse him of not knowing. Don't you know God? Don't you understand God? Can't you see God? Why don't you? You accuse him of ignorance when in fact he knows everything. There is someone ignorant in the conversation, but it isn't God. Yeah? It's us. We are extremely ignorant. Matter of fact, if you think about it, there's very little that we do know. I remember when I knew everything. And then I started to grow up and I learned I knew. And the older I get, the more I know that I know nothing. You know? I can learn. But you see, God knows everything. Now, if he knows everything and he's at the wedding, 
He knew that that water, that wine was going to run out, right? Yeah? He knew before he even got to the wedding. He knew before they even, before the bride accepted the proposal of the groom, he knew that when they get married, they were going to run out of wine, yeah? He knew before the bride and the groom got born that when they would grow up and they would find each other and get married, that they would run out of wine. Do you understand this? He knew before the world was created that there would be a wedding in Cana on a certain date and time and that they would run out of wine because he knows everything. So he comes to the wedding and he knows. Now, you see, my question is, if he knew all of this, why didn't he go to the, to the bride and the groom and the parents and say, listen, around about 3 o'clock this afternoon, you're going to run out of wine. I suggest you start doing something about it now. Send someone off, get some more wine. But he didn't do that, did he? He didn't tell them. So he just stands there, and he's watching the wine go down and down, and he knows what's going to happen. doesn't say a word to anybody. doesn't even tell his mum. It's just going down and down and down and down and down. And down, and suddenly they realize, uh-oh, uh-oh, we have a problem. We're going to run out of wine. How embarrassing is that? Now, I would imagine, if it was you or me, I would imagine what we would do, it would get to a certain point when we realize we have to get some more wine. And maybe then they started going to their neighbors and family members and saying, could you go home and get some wine and bring it? But no matter what they did, because I want to tell you, no matter what they brought, They were going to run out of wine because God had decided they were going to run out of wine. You do understand, don't you? There was no way around this problem. They could have brought a massive tanker full of wine. They still would have run out of wine because it was the purpose of God. Yes? That's the other thing about God. All things are under his control and subject to his will. Anyway, we won't go there. I lose friends. But you see... They were running out of wine because there's a plan, a divine plan. And then as they begin to run out of wine, they go to Mary. Maybe because Mary, Mary were running out of wine. I know your village is a long way away, but could, do you know any way by which we could get some more wine? Because they didn't know Jesus, who Jesus was. Okay. So they go to Mary. Mary, oh, Mary. Or maybe so Mary saw the panic. Mary, what's wrong? Well, we're running out of wine, running away. Mary says, don't worry, I'll fix it. Yeah, right. So she goes to Jesus. Now, the Jesus who watched it all happening. Yeah? And she's going to say to him, son, fix it. Yeah? She, look, she didn't have a clue what was going to happen. She didn't have a clue how, how it would happen, but she knew who he was. That's all she knew, who he was. Let me say this to you. He is there. He is present with you. That's another of his attributes as God. He is always present with you, even when you think he's not present, even when you accuse him of not being there, even when you ask the question, where are you? He is always there. He never left you or forsake you, not once, not ever, not for a moment. David says, behold, if I go down into hell, thou art there. He is always there. He fills the universe with his presence. He is always with you. If anyone moves, it's not him. Yeah? 
And no matter how you move, you can't move away from him. He's always there. So now we have a God who's always there, who knows everything, who can do everything, and he's doing nothing. And that's where we get annoyed, right? Because our question with God is, if you know, and if you could fix it, and I believe you could, and you know what's happening, then why the dickens don't you do something? Why did you let that happen? You could have stopped it. Uh, You could have stopped that accident. You could have stopped me losing my job. You could have stopped that embarrassing moment. You could have stopped that sickness. You could have stopped it, and you didn't do it. You stood there, and you did nothing. Why? That's an accusation made frequently against God. Why does he do that? Because he is there, and sometimes he is silent, And sometimes he does nothing. And I can tell you this. The reason that he does nothing is because he wills to do nothing. Now that's difficult for us to understand. Because we don't want God to will to do nothing. We want him to will to do something. However, you've put yourself in a rather difficult position because you said... Our Father which art in heaven, thy will be done. And when he wills to do nothing, you're supposed to accept his will to do nothing as his will, not your will. Let not my will be done, let thy will be done. Our Father which art in heaven, thy will be done. Then we get before him and say, I don't care what you want, this is what I want. Do this. Do this. And not only do we tell him what to do, we tell him how to do it. I want this. I want it by five o'clock. I want that. I want this much. I want that much money. I want this. I want a job. I want it to look like that, 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 that. I want this. I want that. And we've got, a, we've got a laundry list that we come before God of all the things we want God to do because it's not a matter of God's will being done. Our greatest concern is our will being done. That's what we want. That's the fight between us and God. Our will versus the will of God. Because we know what we want and we know what's best. So we rarely come to God and say, Lord, as Mary's going to do, fix it. We come to God and tell him what we want and how we want it done. We have an answer. And the only answer we want from God is the one we demand. Think about it. Think about it. And that's where the problem arises. Because what we should be doing is saying, let not my will be done, let thy will be done. I'm giving it to you. You fix it any way you want. You do whatever you like. I'm, bring, I'm rolling all my care upon you. And you do what you wish. Believing that he's going to do what is best for you. Because he will give you the best. Even if the best is not what you want. So why doesn't God intervene? Well, let me say this to you. You see, if God intervened in everything so that you never had a problem, you were never hurt, you were never disappointed, you were never frustrated in life, no one ever caused you any pain or suffering, you never had any accident, you never got sick, nothing ever happened to you that was bad, you were wrapped up in this fuzzy little bubble of God's goodness, let me ask you what sort of person do you think you'd turn out to be? you'd turn out to be a real nasty little spoiled brat, wouldn't you? Because you would have no empathy, no understanding, 
no sympathy with other people. You had never experienced anything difficult. You could not understand what people were going through in life. You wouldn't know what disappointment and heartbreak was like. You wouldn't know what sickness and pain was like. You wouldn't know what it was to lack. All you would know would be living in a fuzzy bubble. What dreadful people we'd be. What awful people. You know those people. You read about them, those spoiled people with billions of dollars who run around, who are so arrogant and demanding, who have no understanding of other people's problems. You read about them all the time. But you know, that's not the sort of people God wants us to be. He wants us to be people who have experienced life, who understand life. This because all these things that we want God to stop from happening to us, that's life. That's the fabric of life. That's what it is to live. And he wants you to live. And he wants you to experience all these things so that you'll become a better person. So that through these trials and through these difficulties and through this pain and through this suffering and through this disappointment, there is a change and a transformation that happens to us in our character. And we become better people. And our faith becomes stronger because we trust God through it all. So that he says to you, in the world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise you want to claim. But be of good courage. Be of good courage. I have overcome the world. So we are going to, even though we're Christians, we are going to experience just the same problems of everybody else. Because he causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust, right? So we're going to experience life's problems. But the point of it is, we're going to experience life's problems with God. His presence in our life. Hmm? And he, knowing his grace, and he's going to lead us through this. And according to his will, we're going to come out to something better than if we'd gone through this without him. Amen? Do you see what's going to happen here? Yeah, I know you don't like it. I know you don't like it. And I know you'll try and find another answer to satisfy yourself. But let me tell you right now, there is no other answer. This is the truth of it. Hmm? Now, some preachers will tell you, oh, if you just believe, everything's going to be fine. If you believe, you can get a Rolls Royce, you can drive a Mercedes, you can get a bigger house, you can get a bigger television. They're stupid people telling you lies. Haven't you found out yet? It doesn't work. What you need is a realistic understanding of this, what God's purpose for you is. God doesn't have a plan to stop you from experiencing anything difficult or disappointing. That's not in his playbook for you at all. Doesn't exist. God wants you to go through life and experience life with him. And at every point of life that is a challenge and a trouble and a difficulty to you, he wants to be there with you. He wants to engage with your faith. He wants to bring you through that triumphantly. But he doesn't want you to have no problems. He doesn't want spoiled brats. Yeah? Okay. Enough of that. Move on. Lost a few people along the way there, Pastor. So he doesn't prevent the problem. But what happens now is Mary comes to him and says, fix the problem. Now, he has a little bit of a game with her. And he says, my time has not yet come. There's a bit of a puzzle about that because, as I said, later on in the chapter, Jesus, we're told that this was the first sign. So it was already planned that this would be the first sign. So he already knew what he was going to do and he already knew the plan was there. But he smiles at Mary and says, what, you're telling me what to do? 
And she says, yeah, I am. And uh, you don't argue with mum, right? Well, to your own peril. And so she just didn't engage. She just said, it's, they've run out of wine. Fix it, boy. And then she goes to the, the, the servants and she says, do what he tells you to do. That's the key here. He will tell you, you will do it. The answer to this problem is listening to what Jesus is going to say and putting it into practice, yeah? So now he tells these servants to do something which is absolutely ridiculous because he says to them, I want you to go down to the well and I want you to fill the water pots with water. Now, I, if I were a servant, I would have been really a difficult guy on that day because I would have said to him, now look, Jesus, I hope you understand they need wine. So getting the water is a waste of time. We don't have a water shortage here. We never have. We've got a wine shortage. But you're asking me to get water when in fact what they need is wine. There's a problem of faith, isn't it? When we're told what to do, we think that we know better. We've got a better answer. God doesn't really understand. That won't work. When people tell you about faith and putting faith in the Word of God and putting the Word of God first and believing God and trusting God, nah, that won't work. Like Moses when he was told, hold that stick up and I'll part the Red Sea. It's a stick. What difference will that make? Why can't I just stand here and you do it? You hold up the stick. All right, hold up the stick. Yeah? God often asks us to do things we don't understand. Often asks us to do things that we think are, are not going to work. Things that to us are unnecessary. Why? Because you see, let me say this to you, you've got to understand it's about understanding God is going to do this, not you. You didn't do it with your own intelligence. You didn't figure it out yourself. You didn't come up with your solution. You put God's solution into practice, which was, a, which was insanity to your mind because he confounds the minds of the wise and he shows that the outcome was not by our intelligence but by his working. And when you know you did something that would not intelligently work and yet it happened, you'll know it wasn't you that did it, but God did it. That's what he did with Gideon when he was told to wait, you know, wave his lamps and blow his trumpets. And that's what he did with David when he went down with a little sling and a stone because it doesn't work. But because God has told you to do it, you do it in faith and it does work and you know it wasn't you, it was God. So now he's telling them, go get the water. Get the water and, and bring it up and pour it. And go get some more and bring it up and pour it in. And, and, and so I've got to say this to you. There are times when we, we find it difficult to exercise faith. Because we just say, that won't work. That won't work. Well, listen. If you think it's not going to work, okay. But at least be obedient. Obey. You might not be able to figure it out. You might not think, I don't think this is going to work. But obey. Just flipping do it. Why do we get ourselves in a position? I'm not going to do that. That's not going to work. Why did you say, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm going to do it anyway. Why don't you just obey? Our problem is not sometimes faith. It's with simple obedience. Thy will be done. Now, well, way I'm doing your will I want to do my will. We should convert the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let my will be done in the earth. Do as you're told. Huh? 
It's a matter of obedience. I suggest if you can't summon up enough faith to act with, at least summon up enough obedience. Yeah? Obey. Obey. So now there is this obedience thing. You bring the water. Now, what happens when they bring the water? The musicians are coming, so I need to be quick. The water is brought, put into the pot, right? They take the water out of the pot. What are they taking out of the pot? Water. Because it's coming out of a water pot and it came out of a water well, right? And they take that and they're going to serve it on the table. So they pour it out here and they pour it out there. And what are the servants pouring out? They're pouring out water. There's no indication they poured out wine. All right? So they go along, pour out water, and then they hear behind them, wow, wow, and look, what's wow? This, this is water. I know it's water. I got it out of the well myself. I know it's water. I got it out of the water pot myself. I know it's water. I poured water into your cup, and you're going, wow, what's happened? The miracle happened when they actually, their faith, their service, their obedience, when that connected then with the need it changed to war, to wine. That's what was changing it. That by the power of God, as they obeyed it and stepped it through, then, and, and see, if you carry the water, uh, you can bring it to the need. And at that point, God will change and bring a miracle. But what is the water that you carry? That's your faith. That's your obedience. That's your trust in God. That's your relationship with God. And if you walk with that and you carry that, then when the need arises, there will be a miracle. But you want the wine from the well and it won't come. That's why we have to walk it all the way to the end with God. All the way to the end. And then it will come. Just walk it in faith. Now, now I just want to say a couple more things. Well, the musicians, please. Well, got a minute? Okay, now listen. Water was turned into wine. We know that. You've known that all the time. Now let me just say this. Water is made of two elements. We all know this. I don't want to do a science thing because I wasn't very good at science in school. But I do know it's hydrogen and oxygen, right? Yeah? H2O. Hydrogen, the most common element in the universe. The sun is made out of hydrogen. That's why it's number one on the table, right? Oxygen, extremely, extremely common. But God takes two things that are extremely common and brings them together and brings this life-giving substance that we call water without which you can't exist or live. It's everywhere. It's everywhere on planet Earth. It's on the moon. It's on Mars. It's in molecular clouds throughout the universe. They are finding planets around suns billions and billions of light years away that have water. It's everywhere. In fact, you are 70% water. You are a bag of water. Okay? Now that's difficult for us to grasp, but we are water. You are ordinary, common water. Yeah? Now, I know your mother told you you were somebody special, but you really are. You know that. To mum, you were really wonderful. To the rest of us, you're ordinary. You ain't special. You're just like everybody else, right? ordinary and we get a little bit offended with that because I was told I could do anything well you tried that and it didn't work did it 
I can do anything I want to do in life. You tried that, it didn't work. I can be anything. You tried that, that doesn't work. I'm telling you now, you can't be a rocket scientist or an astronaut or an athlete unless you've got the talent, capacity and ability to do it, no matter how much you want to do it. Yes? You'll get to a point in life where you'll fail enough tests and you'll be rejected enough times and you'll try enough things to realize you just can't do anything. You don't have an unlimited capacity. You are not that good. You are ordinary yeah but God made ordinary for a reason see being ordinary is not a problem uh, we have to relax with our and accept our ordinariness we don't have to be special to impress God he's not looking for you to be special he knows who you are and he knows how ordinary you are and doesn't he love you for who you are even though you're ordinary and here we see in this miracle that he takes ordinary water, turns it to exceptional wine. And for bags of water like you and I, that is a tremendous encouragement. Because he can take people like you and me, just a bag of water, and he can do some pretty wonderful things with us. Amen. When we're in the hands of God, he can do extraordinary things through ordinary people. And the best of all is that he said that at the end of the feast, when it was all over, you gave, the, the, the head of the feast said, you gave the best wine last. And I want to say to you, no matter what you've experienced that God has done in your life or done for you, or it, it's not the end of it. There are even better things to come. There are better things to come for just ordinary people like you and me. All we need to do is trust Him. All we need to do is live in obedience to Him. All we need to do is bring our problem to Him, submit to His will, and let Him do it. And He will perform the miracles for us that will turn ordinary into extraordinary for you and I. We can live in that place in God. And you might say, well, you know, you know I mean, I was lucky. You weren't lucky. You've never been lucky all your life. But God has blessed you. He's done so. Oh, well, that was a close call, wasn't it? Yeah, God protected you. Yeah. And you say, oh, well, you know, I, I, I was so good. You weren't so good. You're ordinary. God enabled you to do it. And I think it's, we, we need to come to a place where we acknowledge all, everything, every good and perfect gift comes from above. That's what we have to acknowledge. If you have a talent, God gave it to you. If you succeeded in some way, God enabled you to do it. Let's give Him all the glory. Amen. The glory you keep for yourself, you're robbing God of His glory. But God will keep on blessing us and has many good things for us. If we will walk with Him in faith and understand that though, though He is there all the time, we don't really appreciate it. And walking with God all the time and submit to His will and walk in His word and just let His grace flow around our life, then good things are going to happen. Amen? And you might not see them as good things, but good things are going to happen all the time. Amen? Even the bad things are good things because the bad things God turns into good things. And though you may be hurting now, just wait, just wait for this little season and all things will become good. Amen? because he's working in you and working in your circumstance and his plan for you is a good plan amen he worketh all things and he doeth all things well amen we just have to come to that place in our life and our heart where we're willing to accept that and submit it to God amen well there you go you've heard it all before 
Those of you that went to sleep, it's time to wake up now. Or they're going to close the doors on you and you'll miss your lunch. I hope that we've been able to think together about this and bring a few things to your attention. But I want to say this to you. Very often, you know, we, we, we come to a time like this in a service and it's like, well, come forward, get prayed for, get blessed. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'll do that. There's no problem. I believe in it. But really what I want to ask you today is this. What is the one thing that God said to you today? Not me. See, there are two preachers here today. There's me, and I'm not that good. Right? I'm just the voice. I'm the speaker, not the preacher. There is a speaker and a preacher. I'm the speaker, but did you hear the preacher? The preacher was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said something to you today. Now I know he's going to say something to you today because he cannot be silent. He speaks always. And when we bring the word, God speaks. God has spoken into lives today. He spoke to you if you were listening, not to me, but to the Holy Spirit. The question you have to ask yourself is, what is that that God said to me today? Because what I want you to do right now is to clarify that, say this was the one thing. If it's one thing, that's fine. Look, you'll forget about me tomorrow and next week you won't even remember who the preacher was. That's okay. But I want you to remember what the Holy Spirit said. The one thing the Holy Spirit said to you today is one thing. If you've been attentive, if your mind and your heart has been open, God said something to you today. He put a seed into your life. That one thing. That one truth is extremely powerful for you. It's powerful for you, not because of me, but because the Holy Spirit placed that seed in your life. And it's that seed that's going to bring change to you. You may have come here saying, God, I need an answer. That's an answer. You may not like it, you may not want it, but it's the answer. You've come here, he's given you something. It's a gift from God. Here, this is the truth. Take this truth and apply it to your life. If you do that, if you do that, then it will grow roots and it will bring forth fruit. But if you don't, then it will shrivel up and die and you've lost what God gave you. I want you to think about that one truth for a moment. Can we bow our heads together, please? Because this is so important. Father, we come before you right now. You know our circumstance. We don't have to describe our situations and our problems and our difficulties to you because you know them all in detail. But we bring ourselves to you the way we are right now. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here today, speaking into lives. I pray for those that have been attentive to your word today, for those whose hearts have been open and receptive today, I pray that they would know the word that you've spoken into their life and see the seed that you've deposited in their life right now. And I pray that they would take hold of that seed, that they would take hold of that word, that they would treasure it, Father, that they would remember it, Lord, 
And as they leave this place, that they would apply the word that you have placed in their heart. So that, Father, as they nurture that word and practice that word and apply that word, that it would bring forth, Father, an abundance of fruit in their life, I pray. Thank you for your deposit of your word in the lives today. And may we receive it with faith, apply it with joy, and water it, Father, with our worship and adoration, and see abundance of fruit grow in our life, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your patience, church. God bless you. Thank you.